Abraham, Martin, and John. That was the song popularized in 1968 by Dion as he sang about lives that were civic-minded and yet tragically cut short through assassinations. Four American public servants in that song, Abraham Lincoln, John F. Kennedy, Martin Luther King Jr., and Bobby Kennedy. And the haunting refrain after singing about each one of those civic leaders was, it seems that the good, they die young. That song was a protest it was an acknowledgement that life's not the way it's supposed to be. It's, it's a lament to the reality that this world doesn't operate the way that we tend to think it should operate. Doesn't try to understand it. Doesn't try to explain it. It just honestly acknowledges it. Life is not fair. Things don't happen the way they're supposed to. Injustice sometimes does prevail. Sometimes evil triumphs over good. You don't have to be a philosopher to recognize this. You just have to live with your eyes wide open and be honest enough about what you see. That's precisely what the book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament does for us. It looks at life as it really is. The author of Ecclesiastes is a man whose Hebrew name is Kohelet which means preacher or teacher. He's a man who writes with brutal honesty. He, he writes about real life in a fallen world. And he's committed to telling us the truth about such life with all of its vanities and all of its brokenness. In order to do so, very often in this book, he takes the perspective of life as, as if there's no God. He uses the phrase, under the sun in order to signal us that he's taking that perspective. He refuses to sugarcoat the realities of life with all of its uncertainties, its misfortunes, its obscenities. And he shows us that if we're going to make sense of this world, the only way to find purpose and hope and joy and meaning is to come to know the creator of this world. To come to know our creator, the one true God, and to know Him by the grace that He provides for us in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So today we return to our study of Ecclesiastes. And we're going to pick up where we left off in our last study, which is the middle of chapter 7. Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Our text is verses 15 through 29 of Ecclesiastes chapter 7. If you're using one of the Bibles that's provided for you, that's found on page 556. 557. So I invite you to keep a Bible open in front of you and follow along as I read this text and then as we just work our way back through it to hear what it is that God's Spirit is saying to us today from His Word. Ecclesiastes 7 verse 15. In my vain life I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. and There is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. 
Wisdom gives strength to the wise. More than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say. Lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise. But it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. To live well in this world, you must honestly assess the world in its brokenness. And you must humbly trust God in His goodness. You need to see the world the way it really is and then take God at His word for what He reveals Himself to really be. In this section of the book of Ecclesiastes, Colic gives us a combination of observations and instructions, pithy proverbial instructions. Together, they guide us into a right way of thinking about the world and put us on the pathway of living well in this world. I want us to see this morning, breaking the passage down into three broad headings, how the preacher guides us on this pathway. The first thing he tells us in verses 15 through 18 is that sometimes the world simply doesn't make sense. Sometimes life doesn't make sense. He gives us his observations of reality. In verse 15, he just starts it off. This is the summary of what he's about to elaborate. In my vain life, I've seen everything. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. There's a wicked man who prolongs his life in evil doing. In his own life, vain life, short, brief life, he says, I've seen it all. And this is what I've seen. Sometimes good people die young. Sometimes wicked people live a long time. This is exactly the problem that we heard about in Psalm 73 when Jared read that for us from Asaph. Asaph struggled with the question, why do wicked people get off so easy? And righteous people seem to struggle so much. Why is it that the wicked often prosper? You know, we like to think that in this world, if you do what you're supposed to do, you keep your nose clean, you try to live a good life, live according to the rules, you're kind, well, things will go well for you. You'll have a good life. And yet, honest assessments of the world lead us to conclude that that's not always the way things go certainly not what the bible teaches us to expect will always universally 
happen. The Bible makes the point abundantly clear. From its earliest pages, we see in the very beginning of history, after the sin that brought our world into its broken condition, when Adam and Eve sinned against God, their very son Cain murdered his brother Abel. The man Jesus called righteous Abel struck down in the prime of life while his murderous brother went on, was able to marry, have kids, as far as we know, live a long life. We see the same thing in the story in 1 Kings chapter 21 of a man named Naboth. Simple farmer, not bothering anybody when the wicked queen Jezebel decided she wanted his plot of land. She could have all the land in the kingdom. She wanted that plot. And when he wouldn't sell it to her and betray his forefathers whose inheritance he had received in that land, she set him up, invited him to a banquet under the pretense of honoring him, paid people to lie about him, accuse him of blasphemy, and then had him murdered. Jezebel got the land. Righteous Naboth died. That's just simply the way life goes sometimes. You can pretend like that's not true. You can try to avoid facing up to those facts. But in reality, we know that this is often the way life goes. You have to dupe yourself in order to think otherwise. Sometimes, young mothers die. Sometimes, honest workers are fired. Sometimes, Good, godly businessmen lose everything. These things happen in the fallen world. Consequently, we need to be careful that we don't live as if these things are not true or can't happen. And we need to be careful that we don't suggest by our teaching and our outlook on life that this life can be absolutely controlled if you only do the right things. Not true. Because Coelith had seen the injustice that exists in the world, he goes on to give us some counsel then in verses 16, 17, and 18. He starts it off this way. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? And then he counteracts it. Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? Now, that sounds really strange to us, doesn't it? I mean, is it really possible to be too righteous? Is it really possible to be too wise? Is, is what we're being taught here that it's okay to be a little bit wicked? You know, just moderately wicked? You want to be too wicked? But some wickedness is all right. That's not what Coelet is saying at all. That's not his point. He, he's not saying that we should try to live moderately righteous lives, moderately wise lives, moderately wicked lives. Rather, he's warning us from putting too much stock in either how, how we live, too much stock in that, or too little stock in how we live. In other words, he's, he's challenging us to think rightly about why we do what we do. And, and here's this point. This is the, the point he's trying to underscore for us that we don't fall into this trap. Do not think that you gain sovereignty over your life through your personal righteousness or wisdom. 
Don't dupe yourself into believing if you only do the right things or think the right things that you can be sovereign over the outcomes of your life. By thinking that if you meticulously keep all the rules and indeed even go beyond the rules, nothing bad will happen to you. Much good will come to you. You're setting yourself up to be waylaid or else to live in a fantasy world. That was precisely a mistake that the Pharisees made in Jesus' day. They were rigorous in their righteousness. We sometimes forget the Pharisees had a great reputation as being good, upright, holy, moral people, and yet Jesus castigated them in their approach to righteousness. I mean, they had cataloged all of the Old Testament laws, 613 specific laws, 365 of them negative, 248 of them positive. They believed by keeping them and then even making more laws to show how they would keep them, that they would earn God's favor and blessing. I mean, surely, surely God will bless us. We're the children of Abraham. We've done all of the things that God has told us to do. Doesn't God owe us? The mentality was that they could control their destinies by their acts and efforts of righteousness. You can fall into the same trap in pursuing wisdom. Thinking that if you're wise enough, you know enough, you understand enough, that you can use wisdom to guarantee the outcomes of your life. I mean, this is really what's behind a lot of the programs today for weight loss or exercise or financial uh, advance. If you'll only eat this, do this, don't do this, then these results are guaranteed. But the reality is that while certain results may and sometimes even do occur, they can never be guaranteed in a world that has fallen away from God. And to think that you control this will cause you to live without thinking about God. My sister, who rigorously maintained a very healthy diet, exercised at least five times a week, was the picture of health and looked like she was going to live to be 100 until she got brain cancer and died at age 59. These things happen in a world that is broken, in a world that is not the way it is supposed to be. You know this. You have testimonies in your own life. You have experiences. You have friends, family members, who through no specific fault of their own have suffered very tragic realities. Brothers and sisters, we cannot control the world or make our lives work exactly the way that we think that they should work by any of our righteous effort or by any of our accumulation of wisdom. To think otherwise is not only to deny reality, it's actually to deny God. Because God is the one who rules over this world. He created it. He sustains it. To think that if you only do the right things or the, think the right thoughts, that you can guarantee these results, that's closer to karma than it is to biblical Christianity. Do good, good will come to you. Do bad, bad will come to you. And so, if you have bad or if you have good, well, the obvious explanation is you must have done good to get good or done bad to get bad. That's 
a Mideastern philosophy. It's not biblical Christianity. This does not mean, however, and Koalith is quick to show us this, that you can simply live any way you want to by giving in to any wicked impulse that comes to you since you can't sovereignly control your life. The Bible never advocates this kind of laid-back, que-sera-sera attitude. Well, you know, if I don't have any control, if I can't control my life, then I might as well just do whatever feels right at the moment. And so he goes on in verse 17, and he says that we're not to give in to wickedness out of a sense of helplessness or out of a sense of meaninglessness. Wickedness is always to be resisted. It's destructive and it's foolish. So simply because you can't sovereignly control your world doesn't mean that you should live thoughtlessly and carelessly and wickedly in it. Well, what should we do then? What should we do? It's verse 18. We should learn to live in the fear of God. It is good that you should take hold of this and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. In other words, on the one hand, you avoid this mistake. On the other hand, you avoid that mistake. Avoid both mistakes. The mistake of thinking that your actions can absolutely manipulate the outcomes of your life or thinking that your actions are completely meaningless and it doesn't matter how you live. Well, then how should you live? You should learn to live in the fear of God. You should think about this world as being God's world. Life is not a machine that you can manipulate. It's a gift from God. And God alone is sovereign over it. He rules it all by Himself. He rules it for Himself. He overrules everything in this world. And if you live as if life is a puzzle that you need to figure out, and once you get the key pieces in place, then you can dictate how it will turn out, you will miss, you will miss God and you'll realize, you'll fail to realize that the way to live is on the basis of His grace. All you are, all you have, anything you ever will attain is because of God's grace. The point and purpose of our existence is to lead us to God. It is to bring us to the end of ourselves and to confront us with the living God who created us and who calls us to be reconciled to Him. Don't fall into the trap of thinking, well, if I just do good, if I just do some good things, more good things than bad things, if I just learn more, if I just understand more, then I will be able to have the kind of life that I want. I can guarantee how my life will turn out. Don't fall into that trap. That's not the way the world is. Brothers and sisters, this is a problem not just for those outside who don't know God. This way of thinking can also infiltrate the mind of a Christian. It can happen to us when we begin to forget that our God, our Creator, is a personal being. He's the one who made us. He is the one that the Bible says moment by moment sustains us. He's the one who redeems us in Jesus Christ. Our lives are in His hands. Our destiny is in His hands. God is not some kind of cosmic Coke machine. 
that if you just take the right coins and put them in the right slot and push the right buttons, you can be served whatever it is that you want. It's not the way the world is. It's certainly not the way God is. He's a God who has created and sustains and redeems the world. He's the only God. To live well in His world, you've got to deal directly with Him. And the first attitude in dealing with this God is fear. Fear. That's what we're admonished to do right here, right? Fear the Lord. Revere Him. Be in awe of Him. Recognize that He is not here for us. We are here for Him. He created us. He has a purpose for us. We owe Him. He doesn't owe us. That truth throws us at His mercy and grace. It reminds us that we must live by the mercy that He supplies us every day. We must depend upon the grace that He gives us every day. And even if you're not aware of that, you live by His mercy and grace. Your heart beats by God's mercy. The, the blood courses through your veins by God's grace. What happens is God is so good to us so often. He's so merciful and so gracious in so many ways. We begin to presume upon that. And we think, well, that's because I've done X, Y, and Z. And we forget that no, while God has made the world in certain ways that we ought to live wisely and righteously, those are means. Our efforts are means. The cause is God. And we must deal with Him. So fear God. We're told in Proverbs 9.10 that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And until we come to learn to fear God, we will not learn to live well in this world that is marred by sin. Well, because the world sometimes doesn't make sense, the preacher goes on to tell us in verses 19 and then 23 and 24 that wisdom and righteousness are good, but they are limited. He, he's just said that we shouldn't be overly righteous, overly wise, but he wants to quickly acknowledge, look, they're good. Wisdom, righteousness are good in their place, but they're limited. Verse 19 he says, wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. I mean, just because wisdom doesn't make you omnipotent doesn't mean that it has no value for you. Wisdom is extolled throughout the Scriptures. So we see, for example, in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 13, 14, and 15, Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding, for the gain from her, wisdom, is better than gain from silver, and her profit better than gold. She's more precious than jewels. And nothing you can desire can compare with her. Or Proverbs 4.7. Get wisdom. And whatever you get, get insight. Understanding wisdom in any sphere of life can be very beneficial. Whether that's science, math, physics, human nature. Any area where you can gain real wisdom can serve you wonderfully well in fact in the next two chapters over in chapter 9 verses 13 through 18 
Coileth himself will tell us about a poor, wise youth who saves a city because his wisdom showed them what ought to be done. And he says that wisdom is better than weapons of war in chapter 9, verse 18. So wisdom's good, righteousness is good, but there is a limit. There is a limit to human wisdom. Verse 23 says, all this I've tested by wisdom. And I said, I will be wise, but it is far from me. That which has been is far off, deep, very deep. Who can find it out? What he's saying here is that I know when I get to the end of my wisdom, there's a whole lot more that I just don't understand. John Calvin, speaking about this, writes of what he calls a wise ignorance. A wise ignorance where you acknowledge. Yeah, God has revealed and taught us a lot of things. And we want to be as wise as we can be. When we come to the end of our wisdom, we know there's a whole bunch of things we're still ignorant about. That's what Coilet comes to understand. That's why he says there's limitations to our wisdom. No mere mortal can ever possess all wisdom. And just as there's limited value in human wisdom, so there's also a limit to human righteousness. He says in verses 20 through 22 that there's no mere man who's completely righteous. Look at verse 20. Surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. There's nobody, he says, who always does what he's supposed to do. There's nobody who never fails to do what he's supposed to do. Everyone is flawed. Everyone is sinful. Everyone is broken. We might pretend like that isn't so. You might not want to believe that it is true, but that is the clear testimony of God's Word. And brothers and sisters, this truth ought to humble us when we are dealing with unrighteousness that is acted against us. That's what he says in the little story that he tells, the piece of advice he gives, starting in verse 21. He says, because it's true, we're all sinful. Do not take to heart the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. Isn't that good wisdom, good advice? You hear somebody speaking ill of you, and what's the temptation? To, to be offended, to become defensive, to want to strike back. And he's saying there's nobody perfectly righteous. We're all sinful. And so be careful not to take it to heart. Be careful not to be quickly offended. Just as we need mercy because of our sin, we should extend mercy to other fellow sinners. So brothers and sisters, when you're mistreated, when you're lied about, when you're cursed, when you are unjustly criticized, remember that you also are a sinner just as the person who is doing this to you is a sinner. Remember. That love, along with the knowledge that we ourselves are sinful, love covers a multitude of sin. And when you must deal with sin, as we are called upon to do, deal with it not from the standpoint or vantage point as if you yourself has never sinned. But you deal with it as a fellow participant in this broken and fallen world who is dependent upon grace, not your own righteousness, who is trying to help someone else see something that they might not see because God in His grace has helped you to see it. The reality is that 
Neither you nor I have all the wisdom or righteousness that we desperately need. We are all limited in our understanding. We are all sinful. We are all limited in the ability of doing things the way they ought to be done. In other words, we cannot make life work by our own wisdom or our own righteousness, which is exactly why we need wisdom and righteousness from outside of us. We need to be given wisdom and righteousness, which is exactly why Jesus Christ came into the world. Listen to the way the Apostle Paul explains this. In these very categories, taking the exact perspective that we see in Ecclesiastes, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul writes this, beginning in verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly, foolishness, to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the world's wisdom, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Paul's saying, your wisdom can't save you. Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Yeah, we come to the end of it very quickly. We think the best thoughts we can think and we realize there's still more. We are limited in wisdom. For since in the wisdom of God, Paul goes on, the world did not know God through wisdom. You can't control God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Jews demand signs. Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and a folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. What Paul is saying here is that the limitations of our wisdom, the limitations of our righteousness, set us up to receive ultimate wisdom and ultimate righteousness, which are found only in Jesus Christ. And if you're going to live well in this world, you're going to have to deal with the God who created this world, who rules over it in its brokenness, and come to acknowledge your abject dependence upon Him and your need of what can only be provided outside of yourself from Him that He has provided in His Son, Jesus Christ. The wisdom that we seek to make our lives work is the wisdom that is found only in Jesus. It's the wisdom that's put on display in his life of complete obedience to God's commandments. His death on the cross to pay for sin. His resurrection from the dead to overcome sin, death, and hell in the provision of eternal life for all who trust him. You can study all that you can. You can learn all that you can. You can apply yourself as carefully as you can to any field of knowledge. You will never find life by doing so. What you need is wisdom from above. The wisdom that God has given in Jesus Christ the Lord. That's also true of righteousness. Look again at verse 20. Does this sound familiar? Surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does, no, who does good and never sins. Does it sound familiar to you? Paul quotes it in Romans chapter 3, verse 20. 
when he's saying that everyone is sinned, and then he goes on, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. If you think that you can be good enough to get God to like you or to encourage God to bless you, then you're not thinking clearly. Oh, if I'm only at this place at this time, if I only have my devotions, if I only, if I only, if I only, if I only, then surely, then surely, I can coerce God to bless me. You can't be good enough for God. God's requirements of goodness are far beyond your ability to meet. So Paul goes on in Romans chapter 3 and he says there's not a righteous man on earth. Or he, he goes along with what Kohathoth writes. There's not a righteous man on earth who never sins. They're saying the same thing. There's none righteous. No, not one. Not a righteous man on earth who always does good and never sins. Isaiah 64, 6 puts it even more bluntly when he says that all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment in God's sight. You see how utterly foolish it is then to think that we can somehow bargain with God, the creator, the ruler, the sustainer of the world, by being good? If we're good, then God's got to do this for us. God owes us. You and I do need righteousness in order to be accepted by God but we cannot supply the righteousness that is required. If you're going to get God to accept you, if you're ever going to find favor with God, you know how you're going to get it? Through the righteousness of another. Somebody's going to need to be good for you. And the good news is that's exactly why Jesus came. He came to do everything God requires in fulfilling righteousness. That's why Paul goes on to write in Romans chapter 3 and verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, apart from our efforts to do good. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, it is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. If you want to live well in this world, you're going to need the wisdom that is found in Christ. You're going to need the righteousness that is found in Christ. And the way you get Christ is not by doing, it's by trusting, by taking God at His word. Bowing to Jesus as Lord and acknowledging that your life belongs to Him, that you are dependent upon Him, and that you need the grace and the mercy that God lavishes upon everyone who trusts Him. So are you trusting Christ this morning? Can you say, Christ is my Lord? I'm dependent upon Christ. I'm not dependent upon my efforts. I'm not dependent upon my understanding. I'm dependent upon the One who came to manifest complete wisdom perfect righteousness he is the one who always does good who never sins if you'll trust christ you will find as paul writes in first corinthians 1 30 that god made him to be for you righteousness wisdom sanctification and redemption he'll become what you need you receive through faith well, having made his case about how the world sometimes just doesn't make sense and the value and the limitations of wisdom and righteousness, the author goes on to wrap up this section by revealing that there are certain lessons that ought to govern our outlook on the world. That's what he does in verses 25 through 28. Uh, there are things he discovered in his quest, in his examination of life as it really is. So in verse 25, he 
tells us, I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And then he goes on and he lists four things that he found. Four lessons that will serve us well as we think about life in this fallen world. First, is that sin is seductive and destructive. It's seductive. It doesn't appear as being blatantly immoral. It doesn't always appear as being something that will destroy your life. Rather, it entices. It deceives. It's attractive. Look at verse 26. I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. He highlights sexual sin because it entices, it promises pleasure, but in the end it destroys. This is the same thing that is elaborated in Proverbs chapter 7 about the adulterous woman who ensnares a young man who is naive. Here she's compared to a hunter who seeks to capture his prey and all those who are so captured, they experience something, he says, that is more bitter than death. He speaks of this sin in terms of a seductive woman. But it could be just as disastrously wicked and carried out by an adulterous man. The point is that sin deceives. Sin seduces but sin always destroys. It promises joy, but it delivers pain. It offers life, but it will lead you to death. So we are to be wise to the realities of sin. And just because it looks like it will supply what we long for, the Bible teaches us that it lies to us. Giving in to temptations to break God's commandments is not only dishonoring to God and foolish, it is destructive to us. God's ways are not only right, brothers and sisters, they're good. They're good for us. And so we must learn from these lessons to live for Him in the fear of God, to please Him to take Him at His word, to find our joy and our delight in Him. And as we do so, we will then be delivered from the snares of sin, the snares of the seductress. But to live carelessly and to give yourself over to sin will only find yourself hunted down and taken prey by sin. That's the first lesson. Sin is destructive, it's seductive. The second one is this. Ultimate meaning and purpose cannot be discovered through human ingenuity. Look at verses 27 in the first part of 28. I mean, it's actually, he says, I, here's the second thing I found, and it's really what I didn't find. Behold, this is what I found, the preacher says, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul sought diligently, has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. In other words, he says, I set out to find the scheme of things, that is the sum of things, the conclusion. I want to get to the bottom of what life is all about. And what does he find? He finds out, I can't find it. So the second lesson is that ultimate meaning and purpose cannot be discovered through human 
ingenuity. There is a limit to all understanding. We can't figure out the sum and substance of life on our own. We need revelation. We need to hear from God. And the good news is that God has spoken to us. He's revealed Himself in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Christ, He's revealed to us the point and purpose of this world and of our own lives in this world. And God created you for His glory, His honor, and He calls you to know Him. To know Him. To be reconciled to Him. As Paul puts it in Romans 11.36, For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. You, you can't figure out life on your own. You'll never come to the point and purpose of your life by just thinking and trying to strategize. You need to have God speak to you. Which He does. He has. In His Word. The third lesson is this. The second part of verse 28. There are virtually no truly righteous people in the world. He puts it like this. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. He doesn't tell us exactly what he's talking about in that sentence, but the context helps us to understand that he's talking about righteous people, upright people, as verse 29 puts it. And his point is not that men are more righteous than women. Some would appeal to this, but you know, men, we shouldn't feel good about ourselves. We're one-tenth of one percent better than women if they want to compare it that way. He's just saying, in my experience, just hadn't found it. One in a thousand of the men in my court. Can't find any women in my court that I could say are living uprightly. His point is that sin has permeated the whole human race. That's his, that's his concern to show the universality of human depravity. Sin has ruined us all. So there's virtually no truly righteous people in the world. And then the fourth lesson is found in verse 29. The reason the world is broken is because of human sin. It's our fault. It's not God's fault. You can't blame God for sin. See, this alone I found. God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. The reason the world is in the shape that it is in is because of our sin. God made man upright. He's thinking about Genesis 1 and 2. God created Adam and Eve after he created all of the other creatures in the world. And he made Adam and Eve like himself. And he breathed life into Adam and Eve. And he commissioned them to represent him in the world. And so they had everything they needed to live upright lives just as he made them. But, Genesis 3, mankind has sought out many schemes. Adam and Eve sinned, and all those who come after them sinned. Adam and Eve thought that they could become like God if they ate that forbidden fruit. What really happened is they were separated from God, and they were exiled from the garden that God had prepared for them. And they became liable to His wrath and His judgment because of their rebellion. And from the entrance of the first sin into the human race to this very moment, people have continued to develop different ways, new ways of ignoring and disobeying God. 
People continue to live as if they are masters of their own destiny and captains of their own souls, when in reality, every one of us is stained by sin, by nature, and we are turned away from our Creator, and we need to be rescued. We need to be reconciled to the God who has made us. The only way you'll ever find the purpose for which you were created, the only way you'll ever find the life which you long for, is by being made right with the God who created you. And you can be made right with Him one way. By turning away from your sin, confessing the truth about yourself, and entrusting yourself, heart and soul, to Jesus Christ as Lord. Are you trusting Christ? Are you reconciled to God through the wisdom and righteousness that is in Christ? Or are you still thinking, hoping, dreaming that maybe if you just do enough good stuff, if you just have enough wisdom, a little more knowledge, Somehow you can figure it out and make it work. Friend, be honest with yourself. Be honest with the world. Be honest with the Word of God. And, and hear the goodness and mercy of God in bringing you here this morning to confront you with these realities, not to cause you to despair, not to send you away with gloom and doom, but to set before you the way of life that is in Christ. Trust Christ. You will be reconciled to your Creator. The world is a place where righteous people do in fact sometimes perish in their righteousness. And wicked people do in fact sometimes prolong their lives in evil doing. And the reason is because though God made man upright, they have sought out many schemes. If you want to live well in this world, you need to honestly assess the world in its brokenness and humbly trust God in His goodness. That's exactly what Jesus Christ did. You know, He's the only righteous man, truly righteous man, who's ever lived. And He was cut down in the prime of His life. In His early 30s. Lied about abused he was subjected to a kangaroo court system that was filled with fraud and in the midst of his sufferings in pain in anguish he cried out to his father and he said father if it's possible take this cup away from me but then he prayed nevertheless not my will but your will be done what is he doing what is he doing He's acknowledging this that is happening is wicked. It's wrong. And yet you're God. I, I'm not just being strung out here on some cosmic machine. My life is in the hands of the creator, sustainer, redeemer, God. My Father. So your will be done. Peter, looking back upon that, described what Jesus was doing in these words. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued and trusted himself to him who judges righteously. Don't fall into the trap of thinking you can dictate 
how your life is going to end up. Rather, take God at his word. Live by faith in Christ and entrust yourself to the God who's good and wise, almighty, who's trustworthy. And as you do so, you'll be able to find and to follow this path of true life. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for speaking to us honestly, straightforwardly about these realities. We ask you to help us to believe the things you say. Show us our weakness. Bring us to the end of ourselves and our own resources that we're tempted to depend upon. And enable us, each one, Lord, enable us to rest in, to hope in, to trust in the crucified, risen Savior, Jesus Christ. For we pray in his name. Amen.